So we are in Ezra chapter 4. And Ezra is an amazing book. I want to just quickly give a brief overview of what we've looked at so far. Well, in fact, let me throw out this trivia question. Name the king of Persia who God stirred his heart to make a proclamation for the Jews to return to their homeland. Cyrus. You go to the furnace now. <laughs> it's clean. It is clean. We can't use that. That would be a, a blessing to go to the furnace room these days. So <clears throat> the context is at this particular time, the Jews were in Babylon for 70 years. And when we studied the book of Daniel, we read of the Jews being taken captive. And then in Daniel chapter 9, it was revealed to Daniel through the book of Jeremiah that God said 70 years. So it was getting close to being the time that God was going to restore his people. And interesting enough that uh, God would use this Gentile, King Cyrus, um, to make this proclamation for them to go back. So in spiritual, when we think of this, how is this applied to our lives? We see maybe somebody backsliding, somebody who having drifted from the Lord. And all of this, we see God's grace that he is always, always inviting people back to him. There's never a time that God doesn't. His arms are always open. But as we saw in the first couple chapters, a great application for us is from the Jews is that they need to do it the right way, God's way. There is no other way to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, his son. There is no other way. We can't do enough good deeds. We can't do good works to earn our way to heaven. And there's no way that we can walk with God without obedience. And that's the message we get here in Ezra. So I would encourage my brother to read the first three chapters. Maybe you already have. Uh, but read that, um, you know, after tonight. But chapter four is an amazing chapter. And I think there's great application for us. Again, we looked at the first couple chapters. And we saw that when the Jews came back, they... They built the altar. They rebuilt the altar. Remember the temple and the altar. The altar recognized as the place where man surrendered to God. When we read in the scriptures of an altar, it's man surrendering to God, trusting in God for his strength and his power. And then we also saw how they kept the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a, a feast that God... Uh, gave to the children of Israel to keep that they would be reminded as they would build their little booths, their little houses out and, you know, be reminded of when their forefathers were in the wilderness. And it speaks of God's presence with them as they were in the wilderness. Remember, they were in the wilderness and then they're, you know, for 40 some years. And then they crossed over the Jordan River when God said it was time and they entered into the promised land. And they went good for a while that over time, idolatry, worshiping pagan gods, God judged them you know, for their idolatry, specifically 
uh, judged them for their lack of keeping the Sabbath. And so God, you know, uh, had Babylon come in and take them captive. And uh, that's God's judgment. And so as we see them coming back to Jerusalem, we're seeing God's wonderful grace to them. We also saw not only did they keep the Feast of Tabernacles, but they began, they built the foundation to the temple. And why is that significant? What's significant about the temple? The Jewish temple. Okay. Yep. I was just going to say it's for the presence of God. The presence of God. Tribulation. Tribulation. Okay. So remember, who built the first temple? Solomon. Not David, but Solomon built the temple. David had blood on his hands, so God would not allow him to, to build the temple. But Solomon was the anointed to build God's temple, and you can read about that in First Kings and just a wonderful dedication of the temple. And so the temple represented the, the uh, presence of God. It was their place of worship. It's the place where the priests were. It was the place where uh, the animal sacrifices on the altar. And also, in the Holy of Holies, that was the presence of God. And once a year, the priest would go in. He would do his uh, priestly duties on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And that would foreshadow the atonement that we have in Jesus Christ. It's amazing when you read the Old Testament, it's fascinating, right? When we have the New Testament information, it really reveals what's in the Old Testament. And it's all about Jesus. All about Jesus. So, now, the Jews have come back. They have, they've gotten right with God. The temple wasn't built yet, but it started to be built. And we're going to look at these timelines that I have that will help us understand this as we go through this. But I think you would all agree, um, you know, the enemy, the devil, always wants to throw a wrench into God's plan. And how many times in our own walk with the Lord... When we make that commitment, Lord, I'm surrendering myself to you again. We've all been there. No matter we've fallen away or not being where we ought to be and the Holy Spirit moves us to that place. Lord, I'm yours. I want to surrender to you. I want to follow you with all of my heart. Is there ever a time that the enemy has not attempted to do something? And it's really not even about us. It's about, it's about the Lord. Um, the Lord is always wanting to work to accomplish His plans. And uh, we're going to see in this chapter, as 50,000 Jews were restored. Again, they, they built the altar. They kept the Feast of Tabernacles. They began building the temple. They continued worshiping the Lord. And we're going to pick up in verse 1 then, having given you that outline. Now, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers' households and said to them, 
Let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God, and we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. And so now we have the enemies of Judah and Benjamin. These enemies, uh, not wanting the work of God to be accomplished. And when we think about that in our own lives, what is it that the enemy wants to prevent? In a general uh, sense. What's hmm? Us following the Lord. Absolutely, Matthew. That's bingo, bingo, bingo. That's what the enemy hates. He does not want us to be following the Lord. When we are following the Lord, the enemy's... I mean, he's defeated already at the cross, right? He's, it's not the battle. The war has been... It's won. And we just got these little battles taking place. But everything is going to be fulfilled just like God says. And one day the enemy will totally be gotten rid of. But God, in His infinite wisdom, has allowed Satan to do his thing here on earth. We have to, there's no other way to put it. God allows Satan to roam. You think of Job chapter 1. You know, the heavenly scene where Job, uh, or not Job, but, you know, Satan, you know, and, and God says, Have you considered my servant Job? So when we are being tempted, or when the enemy's coming against us, we have to say, there's no other way of putting it, God allows that. And sometimes we don't think, in, in fact, most of the time we don't think in those terms. Okay, Lord, why are you allowing this? Lord, Lord, why are you allowing this? You know. So, so we have these enemies. Now it's important here, this is why I, I, love, I have loved this book of Ezra because there's so much history, and some of you might not like history, but it really gives us, if we can understand this history found in the book of Ezra, we can understand darn near the whole Bible. It's interesting, these enemies here, we have to have a little backdrop to who these enemies were. Now just a little bit of you know, Bible history here and history of the Jews for us to understand. It will all come together in a second here for you. And so as they are rebuilding the temple, these, these enemies of Judah and Benjamin, they come up. And the question is, who are these people? Yes. Yes, they are. Absolutely. So, Samaritans? Yep. And they were worried about, there was a vacuum made when all the people were taken to Babylon, and these people came in, and they took their positions, and they were worried about losing their positions mm-hmm. uh, with these people coming back. Yep, absolutely. Say again? Oh, we'll touch on that in a second. What's that? Uh, the Middle East now. Jane made the comment, it's kind of like the Middle East now. So remember that the two kingdoms, you had the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, okay? You had the two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, and then you had the rest of the ten tribes, okay? So when you read Isaiah, much of Isaiah, it has a little bit of Babylon in there, but a lot of Isaiah, he was prophesying of the coming judgment from the Syrians. And ultimately that took place 
Um, the uh, northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Syrians in 721 B.C. And the Syrians allowed other people to resettle in the area along with some of the Jews who were left behind. And they dwelt in the area of Samaria. And God, in fact, we should, let's do that. Let's read um, 2 Kings 17. That way you'll know I'm not making it up. <laughs> Second Kings chapter 17. Verse 24 through 41. And we'll start with Peg. And we'll just... Huh? You want me to look? Yeah, we want you to start reading. Um, start reading in verse 24, and we'll just go around. If you don't want to read, just motion to the, your neighbor and they'll read. I'm at 1724, right? Yep, 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 24. And king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from that place, <laughs> and from Ava and from Hamath and from that other place and that place <laughs> and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel and they possessed Samaria and dwelt in the cities thereof. And it was so at the beginning of their dwelling there that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, The nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore he sent lions among them, and behold, they are killing them, because they do not know the law of the God of the land. And the king of Assyria <clears throat> gave this order, Have one of the priests you took captive from Samaria go back to live there, and teach the people what the God of the land requires. So one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria returned to Bethel and taught the new residents how to worship the Lord. How did every nation make gods of their own and put them in the houses of the high places which the Samaritans had made, every nation in their cities where they dwelt. And the men of Babylon made Sopheth Benath, the men of who made Nergal, Nergal, the men of Hamath made Ashima. And the Avites made, oh, that's a good one. <laughs> cool. And the Avites made Nebaz and Tartak, and the Sephirvites burned their children in the fire of, oh well, Adremelech and Enemelech, the gods of Sephirvan. Okay, verse 32. Uh, they worshiped the Lord, but they also appointed all sports, sorts of their own people to I say that word, uh, officiate mm -hmm. for them as priests in their shrines at the high places. Okay. They feared the Lord, yet served their own gods, 
according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried away. Okay, now let's go down to verse 41 then, because I think we get the point here. So while these nations feared the Lord, they also served their idols, their children likewise, and their grandchildren as their fathers did, so they do to this day. So do we get the picture here? So after the king of Syria and after they, the northern kingdom fell, uh, they started to enter into this land and God sent lions. I love that. God sent lions and, uh, because they didn't fear the Lord. And so uh, they went back, told the king of Assyria, hey, um, you know, something happened here. And they believed that God, Israel's God, sent uh, the lions. And so what they did was they didn't know how to live in the land. So they sent for priests to come and share with them how they were to follow the Lord. But we see here they did not know the Lord. You know, they mixed in the things that uh, the priests shared with them to follow the Lord with worshiping their own idols. And we saw they even, you know, gave their children up to their pagan gods. Hmm? More, yeah, cherry pick them. So these nations feared the Lord, yet they served these, their carved images. And so um, this is important for us to understand. These enemies then are now wanting to help build the temple. Um, it's interesting it says enemies. It doesn't say friends. And that's key for us to understand. You know, the enemy again, he only comes to destroy the work of God, not help it. And the enemy, what's, his one, what's one of his power plays? Well, he deceives, right? He's a master deceiver. And you see the enemy, he's always tricking and nothing has changed with him. He works in the same way and he tries to work in our own lives. He works in this world the same way. He persecutes, but his greatest trick is deception. It's interesting, as you look through church history, whenever the church has in, gone through, endured persecution, what has happened? The church flourishes. That's why in China today, as the church of Jesus Christ is being persecuted, the Christian church in China is exploding. You go in Nepal, it's the same way. It's getting really dark and hard in Nepal uh, to share the gospel again. I was thinking that when you got that message from the Barkies and somewhere in Russia, and those guys went in and beat up the secretary and stole a bunch of money and stole all their computers, and they're like, please pray. The next message was, can you send chairs? Yeah. The people just they flocked. flocked. So and that's the enemies tried persecution, but it's never worked. Look what look at Israel. Hitler tried to, you know, the devil tried to wipe out the Jews, six million Jews, and he's still trying. But what happened to Israel? Well, less than ten years later, was it ten years? No, it was more than that. But uh, Israel became a nation. That's only by the hand of God. Israel became a nation. And so, um, you know, we look through church history. This, this is uh, 
you know, certainly the case. So Satan, he changes his strategy from persecution. Instead of fighting with the church, fighting with believers, he tries to infiltrate. He attempts to, you know, come in and bring deception. And a lot of times uh, mix religion with the culture. We see that in the, you know, with Constantine. You know, the third century. We see, we're seeing it now. It is, it, is, it is absolutely crazy right now to compromise um, and how the enemy is in well-known, well-known evangelicalism and in the church. And it's just amazing how things are turning because Satan is just blinding. The latest, and I haven't read the full article yet, but everybody knows who George Soros is. You know, just got filthy money and, you know, anti-God, anti-capitalist, which, you know, where'd he get his money, you know? (laughs) But he's funding now, he's funding uh, many movements and ministries within evangelicalism. It's crazy. And so they're taking that money and now you wonder why some of these top-notch names within you know, Christianity in America, they're starting to turn a little bit. It's the money. It's the money. It's the money. And, it, and it's crazy. And so there's compromise going on. And so let's look at what happens here with verse 3. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua... And Zerubbabel is the governor, right? He's the leader who brought the people back to uh, Israel. Joshua is the spiritual leader, is a priest. And the rest of the heads of the father's households of Israel said to them, You have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God. But we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. So again, the enemy tried to infiltrate. He said, let us build with you. They claimed to seek and worship the same God, but we know from the scriptures they didn't. They didn't know God. They may have observed some rituals within Judaism, but they did not know God. They wanted to help build the temple. They wanted to help join the people of God. But what we have here, again, is a mixed multitude. And we see here... Zerubbabel and Joshua, they avoid the compromise. They did resist. And this is so vital for us to apply to our lives today. You might look at this and think, well, what, I mean, what would have been the big deal if they would have let them help physically build the temple? Absolutely, and Millie. There would have been compromising and Yeah, you know, uh, a non Jew is not even allowed in the temple in most of the places, right? So for them to come and uh, if they would allow them, as Millie said, great word, contaminate, defile. Think about this today. 
just how that would have not even not only have contaminated the temple, but what would follow is the contamination of worship. And that's interesting to me. When you put in light of today, um, we have within the body of Christ today, let's, let's just pretend this happened today. What, let's say we're in St. Mary's, and we are in St. Mary's. And, um, you know, God was wanting to do a work. He's restored his people. And we had non-believers then wanting to uh, come in and help take part in spiritual things. You mean like make decisions? Yeah. To be part of. It says here they wanted to join in. So... What would our response or what should it be? Very, that's it right there. That's what I, where I want to go with this. And it's important because we know that we are to be united in the church. We are one with one another. We're one in Christ, right? And sometimes the unity which is already given to believers. We don't have to work for it. We don't have to manufacture it. We have it in the Lord. We have the Holy Spirit. He brings unity. And if we allow in the body of Christ the, the unequally yoke or fellowship with those who aren't Christians, I'm not saying not be friends. I'm saying working to accomplish the Lord's work. If we're standing side by side with folks that don't know the Lord and we're doing an outreach sharing the gospel, are we going to put the non-believers up in a place to where people can see them and look at those Christians? No, we're not going to do that. And a good, um, since Matthew's here, I'm going to touch on this. Uh, you know, we live in a world that kind of just puts religion all in one, right? And so that would include Jehovah's Witnesses. That would include Christians. And uh, some would even say Muslims, Mormons, right? So here, here's the issue. Who is truly a Christian? Those who know the Lord Jesus Christ. You can do all the religious observance and rituals there is under the sky. But if you don't know the Lord, having that personal relationship with him, you're not, you're not with the Lord. Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, although they, you know, Mormons want to show themselves as Christian, as part of the Christianity. They're not. Based on who they say Jesus Christ is. Does not mean God doesn't love them. But they do not know the Lord. Now, let's, let me give some more. This is why. Uh, let me move on here. So we see here these uh, verse four, it says, then the people of the land. Discouraged the people of Judea and frightened them from the building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So. It's interesting, back to verse 3 real quick. 
Notice here that Zerubbabel and Joshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers, that speaks of leadership. So the leadership had to be united in taking a stand, not compromising, not allowing the work of God to be contaminated. Think in your own life of when you've had to take a stand for the sake of not being contaminated or something that would harm your relationship with God and the call for holiness. And I'm, going, I'm, I'm trying to go a direction here that is very relevant. You know, as a pastor um, in a com- small community... It's not like we have a million people so nobody knows you. But, you know, there's what, 20? I forget how many churches are. It's too many for one, but um, 20-something, right? And so when, when you don't stand in agreement and you stand on the Word of God, you're, you're going to be labeled. You're going to be labeled. But then you have to make a decision, am I going to compromise what I know to be true, or do I go with the call for unity and not raise any waves? And essentially all of us have those things in our life that we have to take a stand. It might be family issues, it might be at school, it might be at work, you know. And the thing is, when we, when we, when we take a stand, as, as they did here, um, the enemy is going to up his game. There's going to be heat. There's going to be pressure. It's going to come. And here we see um, the enemy using discouragement. And I've experienced that. You know, there's been calls of, hey, we need to do this together. We need to do that. And when it doesn't line up with the scriptures... If it's not about the gospel of Jesus, then I don't know where the unity can come from. Does that make sense? So the point in in making a stand and not compromising. And it's so important because, folks, the days are coming. The days are coming. It's already here and it's going to get worse. You know, it's bad now. Have you heard the latest from... The one Democrat, I won't even mention his name, but he's wanting to do away with churches. Do away with them, you know, if they don't line up with, you know, their view on same-sex marriage or homosexuality, lesbianism. And there's church split. Oh, there's... Oh, yeah. They're meeting this week to split over one wants to ordain homosexuals and one doesn't. Mm-hmm. Well, people in that. Right, they've been splitting, denominations are splitting, fractured over these things that if you take a stand, it's, it's going to bring division. But my, this is so important for us because as the days are coming and it gets to be more personal, whether in your family, in the workplace, at school, wherever, we're going to be faced with decisions of not to compromise. And what will that cost us? 
we're not used to having things cost us in our faith here in America. But I do believe the days are coming. But I also believe and I'm very excited about the fact that it's then when God demonstrates his wonderful power. It's when then when we will be on our faces asking God, demanding that he helps us because we can't do it on our own. That's exciting in one sense. Not exciting to understand our kids and our grandkids go through things. You know, these guys, the young generation, I feel for them. They are so, uh, so many things coming and going. And, and, but man, one thing is true. It's Jesus Christ. Amen. And his Holy Spirit empowering. That's how we get through. That's, and it's, here's another thing. It's not, we still need to be loving to people that disagree with us. We have to be loving because G- Jesus loved them. Jesus loved those who despised him. Even when he was on the cross. That's proven, right? Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. So, we see here the discouragement then. And it's enemy, or the enemy, he often uses the tool of discouragement. I'm not sure exactly how this was done other than the fact that, um, you know, they were frightening them. We're not told exactly what those were, but, you know, I can think of like the enemy whispering lies. Have you ever been lied to by Satan, but, you know, and it brings discouragement? This week? <laughs> Absolutely, and this is uh, another perfect example that the anti-Semitism, the anti-Israel, the anti uh, of God's people, God's chosen people, it's always existed, and it's always going to exist until the end end times when we know there's going to be that false peace, and then at his second coming, which is going to be glorious, isn't it? When we see the best love story of all time, when the Jews say, that's our Messiah. It's going to be wonderful. And that's what they're going to do with us. You're hearing that more and more all the time. That we Christians are bad. We're narrow-minded. And we hate people because we don't believe the way they do. So, I think we're going to get more and more. Absolutely. Absolutely. I started reading a book last night on um, Zionism by Thomas Ice. Thomas Ice uh, uh, is a well-known author, scholar of end times, especially the teaching of the rapture. Um, and uh, excellent book. And he, the purpose of him writing it, obvious, is uh, the lie that is giving the world now of how 
you know, the Jews are just so horrible people, they don't deserve anything, blah, blah, blah. And I'm only in a few chat or a few pages, and they were giving the example from the United Nations. The Jews have more, um, what's the word I'm looking for, more uh, uh, things against them. I can't think of the right word. Accusations. Accusations. um, Sanctions. Sanctions. More sanctions against them, like in than the, than the history of the United Nations, all put together of different sanctions. And you look at Israel, and, and ultimately, um, as Netanyahu has constantly said, we have the right to defend ourselves. And when it gets down to it, the enemy, and using man don't even claim Israel to be people, and therefore they have no right to defend themselves. And that's a battle that will be played out forever and forever, and we're seeing it, um, for sure. But when you, when you go back to the book of Genesis, um, God gave Israel the land, and what's marked out is their land, and that's just the way it is. Um, they do have a right to the land. God gave them that right. So, discouragement. The whispering lies. What, what do you think uh, these, the enemies of Judah and Benjamin, what are some of the things that you think the enemy would be whispering or telling the people? Uh, what do you think they would be saying? They think they're better. Okay. What else? God's not real. You think you're special because you worship your God? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, they probably try to justify this is our land. We we're yeah. here now. Mm-hmm. They they were gone. We have all the rights. Yeah, if you think you're so right, why did your God send you to Babylon? This temple will never be built. Why are you doing this? And Satan does it the same thing with us, doesn't he? We all have examples, but you know, as far as the church goes, well, do you guys really think you're making a difference? Do you really call this church? You know, all kinds of, of whispers. You know, it doesn't matter. You go to church, you're, you know, this is a way the enemy... Man, he just blindsides, blindsides uh, you know, newer Christians when they, you know, maybe get out of the habit of going to church or being in fellowship with other believers or being in the Word or praying. Um, you might as well just give it up. Might as well give it up. I was thinking that because they're not rooted, they don't know anything about it. He, he lies and tells them, you didn't really get saved. That, you know. Yep. Your salvation experience, it wasn't real. It was just a feeling. And my goodness, you can't go back to church. The people, they'll eat you alive. They'll look at you wrong. They won't even let you in the door. You know, that's how the enemy works, where it's just the opposite. You can't live like that. You might as well not even try to be a Christian because you can't live like that. I mean, look at your life now. You've never had a day where you didn't really do something stupid. You know, Satan is just a master liar. It's interesting here, they hired counselors. 
So they hired people to continue telling the lies, continuing to discourage them, um, criticize them, frustrate their counsel, you know, go against their spiritual leaders. Uh, very interesting. You know, Satan has his counselors. So now we come to verse 6. And I want us to look at, uh, first of all, the one handout gives the timeline. And this will be beneficial throughout our study and maybe even help clear things up. This one here. Did you guys get this one? So this gives us a timeline. So we see in the year of uh, 539, Cyrus, king of Persia, captures Babylon. We are like in, down to like, uh, 536 BC, 535. Some dates are scholars debate as far as what is actual. Um, so let's just say 536. So that's where we are now. And as we come to verse 6, Ezra, who's the author, he shows us, remember, it was long past, you know. Ezra is looking back at this. So now he's going to show us the ongoing persecution that took place with Israel during this time. And so uh, when we look at verse 6, we want to look at um, this other page, and I wish it was a little bit more clear. Um, We see um, these kings, and that's what Ezra shows us. He's going to be showing us these different kings, All right, so let's just read this and we'll connect the dots. Um, I think it's also when we read this, I would love for us to read it in the mindset of reading a devotion. Like when you're reading your devotion in the morning or the evening or whenever you read your devotion, I don't know about you, but I don't come to this section like, man, i got to go find all those kings. Where are they at in the scriptures? Right? But I think if we just read it devotionally, we can pick out a lot from the Holy Spirit showing us what exactly is going on here. All right? So, it says in verse 6, Now in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. So, if you go to your little paper with the Persian kings, you see this guy. Okay. This would be, see, this one's so confusing. Xerxes 1. Xerxes 1, okay. So, and in the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam, Milterath, Tebiel, and the rest of his colleagues wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, in the text the letter was written in Aramaic and translated from Aramaic. So those uh, kings that he's going to talk about all line up here. You can get the dates. I'll have a better one uh, next week. I actually have it here. I should have copied it. It's so much better to understand. You want to copy that? So starting here, he's going out of chronological order. But again, I, I want us to read it. I call it a Bible reading moment. And so let's read it together and then maybe write down a word if it pops out to you in the scriptures. 
Or just be mindful, okay? So verse 6, it says, Now in the reign of Ahasuerus, at the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam, Mithridath, Tabil, and the rest of the colleagues wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and the text of the letter was written in Aramaic and translated from Aramaic. Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to King Artaxerxes as follows. Then wrote Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their colleagues, the judges and the lesser governors, the officials, the secretaries, the men of Iraq, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations which the great and honorable Asnapar deported and settled in the city of Samaria and the rest of the region beyond the river. Now this is the copy of the letter which they sent him to King Artaxerxes, your servants, the men in the region beyond the river, and now let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem. They are rebuilding the rebellious and evil city and are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now let it be known to the king that if that city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and it will damage the revenue of the kings. Now because we are in the service of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to see the king's dishonor, therefore we have sent and informed the king, so that a search may be made in the record books of your fathers, and you will discover in the record books and learn that that city is a rebellious city and damaging to kings and provinces and that they have incited revolt within it the past, in past days. Therefore, that city was laid waste. We inform the king that if that city is rebuilt and the wall is finished, as a result, you will have no possession in the province beyond the river. So we read a lot there, but what's it saying there? It's all about the money. It's all about the money. <coughs> You're not going to get rid of it. Yep. Taxes. Mm-hmm. All right. What else do you see there? Anything that sticks out to you? Troublemakers. Troublemakers, absolutely. How so? Rebellious, absolutely. I'm, I see the word, I underlined accusation. And that reminds me of how the enemy works. He's always wanting to accuse. He's always wanting to accuse. And when people always have an attitude of accusing somebody, and I get this sometime in, in marriages, when a brother and sister in their marriage and there's conflict, it's not too hard to find out what's going on when you have one of them always wanting to accuse the other. Because it's the same spirit, essentially. I'm not saying they're possessed by the devil, but they have a critical heart at that time, right? So, that's a work of the enemy. And then, the rebe- do you see what they said of Jerusalem? They are rebuilding the rebellious and evil city. 
Doesn't that just reek with anti-Semitism? This is nothing new. This is the enemy's play. He is wanting to thwart the work of God. God is always about restoring people. God had a plan for Israel. They should have known from the beginning. God has a plan for Israel for the Messiah to come. There's no way they could be destroyed. Or God would be a liar. But it also, God meant for them to stand on his promises. And it's the same way with you and I. The enemy accuses us. What happens when we sin? The Holy Spirit convicts us, but can the enemy still bring accusations against the believer? We don't confess it. Yeah, I think that's, that's absolutely key. What, usually what he likes to try to do is isolate us. Mm. Get, keep us by ourselves, like somebody said earlier about not, not coming to church or not going to Bible study, whatever. If people knew how you really were, blah, blah, blah. But when we confess it, there's freedom. Yeah. Amen. And that is the promises of God. We're going to sin. We're child of God. When we sin, the Bible says we have an advocate. We need to go to him. Confess it to him. And we are forgiven. I'll never forget this. Um, When Jude was little... And, uh, you know, he had already made a profession. He was probably about four at the time. And he got in trouble outside. And I made him go upstairs to think about what he had done. I can't even remember what he did. And uh, I told him, you need to ask God for forgiveness of your sin. And I let him up there. It was 20 minutes or so. And then uh, I said, hey, Jude, if you think you've had enough time up there, come on down. So he came down and I said... Did you ask God to forgive you of your sin? He said, yes. And I said, well, what did God say? He said, I'm forgiven. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I want my child to know. It's not about trying to be perfect because we can't. But with the blood of Christ, we are perfect. We are holy. We are blameless. And that's that's. It's part of our relationship with him. And he wants us to live in that victory. But the enemy can't accuse us. That's why it's so important, even a Bible study, learning some history and learning how God works in people and looking at the enemy and how he's real. And he's only got like three or four plays. It's just like St. Mary's Rough Riders. They got three or four plays, but they're really good at them. (laughs) Sweet, dive, trap, encounter. So is the enemy. That's, that's what he had. And he's good at it. And he's clever. And he's so much smarter than we are. But he doesn't have what we have. So um, what else do you see there? You see anything else? Those are the two things that I, I had highlighted. Um, they were brought accusation and damaging. How so, Peg? Satan accuses us, he knows we've got the 
know I'm forgiven. Mm-hmm. And he knows that. So maybe there's like a jealousy. That's interesting um, to think about. Um, who is the enemy jealous of? And even prior, well, yeah, absolutely, the Trinity, right? Before creation. Satan wanted to be like the Most High. And pride. It's pride will lead to jealousy, and jealousy will lead to, you know, action. And uh, that's what we saw with Satan. But that's, that's a good insight of seeing that uh, even these people... Um, no doubt jealous. That's what I was thinking was a pride when you were talking about the married couple and the accusation. It's usually pride is behind it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the, the self doesn't want to be wrong. Mm-hmm. Right? That's why we don't like it when our football teams lose. Because we don't want to be a loser. <laughs> right? It's ultimately pride. So, I what, don't know what, I really don't remember this or why, but I have written outside of verse 12, it must be from an old Bible study, prophecy fulfilled. Prophecy fulfilled, yes, um, absolutely. Well, it is, and we're not going to get to it tonight. I was hoping to, but in fact, we're, it's 8 o'clock, but... This, this is prophecy fulfilled, and um, I probably know what you wrote down there, but we'll have to wait till next time. I tried to give you an overview on the way here, and you guys wanted to wait, and that was probably what I was talking about. <laughs> so, um, so we see here, we'll, we'll, we'll pick up in verse... 17, and I can give an overview. I want to really help you guys understand because you missed those first three weeks. But So they write a letter to King Artaxerxes. You need to look back at history and see that these people caused trouble with all the kings. They, they ruled over all the kings and they took money from the kings. But you remember the real story? Who was ruling the world? Well, God set up on the throne King David. And he subdued all the enemies. And so it wasn't that David was out killing people for the fun of it. It was all about the kingdom of God. And so when they look in the record books, they see, yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. We're going to have to put a halt to this work of the temple being built. And so that's what we're going to see. Um, King Xerxes, he puts a halt to it until further command. And that brings into some interesting things. Does anybody remember? Got a cheat sheet in front of you. You can figure it out. Um, How many years then was the temple delayed in being built? Scholars debate that too, but... So it looks like 10... 10, 10 more like 15. 15. Which, that should make us chew on that. Why 15 years delay? 
Well, we'll go in and we'll look at a couple prophets who began prophesying at that time. One is Haggai and the other is Zechariah. And they have some pretty sharp words for the children of Israel at that time. So, so, huh? You didn't ruin it. We didn't get there. We're only verse 17. So next week, if you want to read from 17 and just read through uh, chapter 5, um, we'll tie all this in together. Um, but again, there's so much great application for us because, you know, the Bible, when we study, there's a difference. I went to a pastor's conference yesterday and this really, nothing new under the sun, but it really sticked out to me. There's a difference teaching from the Bible and then teaching the Bible. When we're in the Bible, we get the true character and nature of God. That's the goal. We want to learn more about God. Can we learn more about God when we look and see how He worked in the life of the chosen people? Absolutely. In the New Testament, it tells us that we should look at them. Paul wrote, we should look at them, especially as they were in the wilderness, that they were an example for us to follow. Now, what great example would that be, them walking in the wilderness? Not disobey God, follow Him, be obedient. Not all these bad things will happen, right? They were in the wilderness because of their disobedience. They were in captivity because of their disobedience. But every time we see the grace and mercy of God. You remember Genesis 6 with the ark. That wasn't all just a great little thing we get our kids to the bathtub. No, God judged the whole world with the flood but he found favor in Noah and that ark, the door. What a wonderful picture of Jesus. So by looking in the Old Testament, we can learn so much about the character and nature of God and know how God works. And we also can find about, you know, who we are, you know, and how God wants to work in our lives. So well, we'll close there. And uh, how about I pray?